From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually engaged. In those instances, I'm always reading from the Badgers. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we're happy to have Professor Dan Kappas. Students regularly tell us that they love his classes, and I'm pretty sure he's broken the rating systems on Rate My Professor for extraordinarily high levels of student interest, teacher quality, and infrastructure engagement in the classroom, not to mention his iconic Hawaiian shirts, which I see him wearing right now, which is awesome. Uh, so students really like Dan, and they appreciate all the ways he brings political philosophy alive for them and makes it relevant to their lives as well as in contemporary politics. So Professor Kappist has won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his career and has published two books and many articles in prestigious journals. Rumor has it he's also a big fan of The Good Place as well as Star Trek um, and can wax eloquently on the political philosophy central to both of those shows. And maybe we can get into that a little bit later. So we'll get into Professor Kappist's career in teaching and research and maybe even some of his Netflix recommendations. So thanks for being with us here today, Dan. Thanks. Uh, Good morning. Okay, so let's dive in. Maybe we start with a little background, some warm-up questions. First, where are you from? What's what does Dan look like at 18 years old? So I'm uh, I'm from actually a pretty small town in suburban Maryland called Colesville. Okay. Uh, Technically, I guess you can list that on the label of an envelope, but it's nobody actually really (laughs) knows exactly where it is. I mean, the boundaries are ill-defined. Okay. When I was growing up, it was pretty rural still uh we had horse farms near us and we had orchards and so that's just where i, I grew up but it, i mean broadly speaking the the, the dc suburbs mm. uh, in maryland um me in high school so this i i got varsity letters for two things in high school <laughs> one of them was for swim team which okay. is you know sort of not that mockable i suppose <laughs> and uh the other was for the quiz team mm. which was highly mockable and to me, what actually this was my senior year of high school uh, kind of encapsulates high school for me is we had a pep rally for the, the boys basketball team and the whole school's there in the assembly room. And unbeknownst to us, me, us being the academic team, we were going to one of the semifinals for the area. Mm-hmm. Our principal decided to call us up on stage first. And, uh, and we did. And there was this corner. You kind of heard a you know, kind of a couple of people applauding okay. and, and that, that's high school to me. Um, no. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's what, that was me when I was 18. At this time, were you already interested in mm-hmm. politics? Yeah. Um, I mean, by that point in high school, I was certainly interested in politics. I mean, growing up around DC, it's, it's kind of everywhere. It's mm-hmm. sort of osmosis. Sure. Right. I mean, your household paper is the Washington Post. I mean, I took AP government, mm-hmm. I think as a sophomore and then uh, AP US history was my senior year. And yeah, that ca- that continued into college. I mean, initially, my majors were American studies and uh, government and politics, mm. which at, at Maryland is political science. Okay, um, really, I wanted to be a judge. I, I don't know why. I just thought <laughs> that was just kind of a cool job. Yeah. Um, and that's what initially what I thought I was going to do. Okay. And I thought uh, American studies was 
the way that I wanted to study America. Right? <laughs> okay. Um, and I very quickly learned it wasn't. I didn't like American okay, studies. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, so why don't we jump into some research questions. In addition to your articles, you've published these two books. Mm -hmm. Well, how about mm -hmm. your latest book, Flattery and the History of Political Thought, That Glib and Oily mm -hmm. Art? Can you give us a, a, a brief introduction to what that book uncovers or talks about? Yeah, I mean, centrally what I'm interested in there is really two things. First is to look to the history of political thought to get a little more nuance in terms of how we think about the phenomenon of flattery, which is a form of deception. Generally speaking, when you read the history of thought, people say it's bad, it's servile, this is beneath people, yeah. etc. Yeah. It's a very top-down elitist approach, sure. and I'm interested in trying to think about a what it might look like from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. And then just broadly speaking, I'm interested in the phenomenon of flattery as a way in which actual political speech occurs in what has basically been the rule of human history, which is power asymmetry and mm -hmm. a lack of political liberty. Sure. So I feel like this ties in really well to contemporary politics. Mm -hmm. And I heard you say, and I think it was actually on a different podcast that you did, that one of the reasons that you were interested in pursuing this idea or mm -hmm. writing about it were uh, reading critiques of Obama's rhetorical mm -hmm. skills. Can you talk about those critiques a little bit and then maybe mm -hmm. how it's tied into our current president? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this was a trope, especially in the 08 campaign that, you know, Obama, I didn't really come from nowhere, but you know, it's a, a story can be told about him sort of coming from nowhere, a very quick rise is in the Senate, then he's suddenly the president. And this, the, McCain ran an ad, it might have only been an internet ad called The One, but it was Obama speaking to, I'm not going to say adulatory crowds, because it's a loaded term, but okay. to crowds who with whom he had a deep resonance. Gotcha. He's very charismatic. Right. Now, one could describe it as adulatory, and that's basically how McCain saw it, mm. or at least the ad did. It shall be known that in 2008, the world will be blessed. They will call him the one. A nation healed, a world repaired. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Interspersed with him speaking to these crowds, were images of Charlton Heston from the film The Ten Commandments parting the Red Sea. <laughs> this was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow and our planet began to heal. Behold his mighty hands. Right. And it's sort of poking fun at it and the idea that there's something, and there were other tropes that came up with him, that there was something dangerous or disingenuous or seductive about his rhetoric and i mean in retrospect i suppose i like bush somewhat now um but at the time i mean a common trope from bush was the guy couldn't finish a sentence sure. right even he himself said at one point something like i'm not one of history's great orators <laughs> and and i sort of wonder why would his eloquence be a worry yeah i mean this is kind of the most basic prerequisite of being a president right. in an environment since right, the, the early 20th century, once they're on the radio and then, mm -hmm. you know, once they're on television. And that got me interested in the other thing that got me interested was uh, a piece that came out in The New Yorker uh, that was about Cory Booker, mm. um, who's now in the Senate, who is running for president. This was about him becoming mayor 
uh, of Newark and the experience. If I remember, I'm pretty sure he grew up in North Carolina, maybe South Carolina. He's not from Newark. And then he becomes mayor, and he's this earnest guy who wants to do well. And he just has – the way this article portrayed it was had no idea how the city worked. Hmm. And so he finds someone who's going to kind of teach him. And I remember the individual who teaches him says at one point in the article some to the effect of, well, look, as a politician, you're constrained in what you can say and how you can say it. He can't get up in front of a, a community meeting and say, maybe the reason why there's trash all over is because you all throw trash on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Put it in the trash can. Right, right. You can't say that, yeah. even if it's true. And, of course, it's not entirely true. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. what he was getting at was this dilemma you face when you speak, right? Yeah. So those are the – and I mean, then I've been teaching stuff on rhetoric anyway. Sure. Um, these are very old problems that, that people have been talking about theorizing since Plato. You see it in Homer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like there's so much talk today about uh, having a political base and are you mm -hmm. resonating with your political base? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that ad run by McCain against Obama in 08 mm -hmm. would not fly today mm -hmm. because you need to resonate with these people mm -hmm. to, to keep your base and, and grow your base. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how do you think that plays out in, well, the latest election and even mm -hmm. just today as the 2020 election starts to revamp? Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about the McCain ad, it's a negative ad presumably designed either to diminish interest among Obama supporters, increased motivation among his voters, mm -hmm. and or maybe to persuade the undecided voter. Okay. Um, that's just what political communication will often sure, do. And sure, there's sure. framing and all these kinds of things and, and you're priming people. So our own political environment, maybe I'm remembering the Obama years with rosy colored glasses or the Bush years with rosy colored glasses. Mm -hmm. It's much more caustic, I think. Mm. And I think this is the case in the UK now as well. Definitely. I think a lot of this has to do with social media. Sure. And then also just the nature of the political conflicts, I mm -hmm. suppose. But mm -hmm. ultimately, you think about that ad from McCain. I don't know how this actually went, but how quickly this could be circulated by Twitter and Facebook, right? Right. right. Uh, this is going to be tweeted and retweeted by people. There's a study done in this, I think, of the National Proceedings of the Academy of or, uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, PMS, mm -hmm. I think which found that tweets that have moral language, and they, they code this and they think about this in a certain mm -hmm. way, are vastly more likely to be retweeted by people who are ideologically similar than people who are ideologically dissimilar. You can kind of represent this, and you can see here blue, here red, mm -hmm. and there the train shall meet. Gotcha. Right? Wow. Mm, makes sense. Um, and if that's the way in which we are communicating within group and not without group, it makes sense of also why things are more vituperative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to an article you mm -hmm. published in the Washington Post last year about flattery in the Trump era. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about the impetus for that article and your concerns about flattery within the presidential cabinet, within media today, mm -hmm. and how those two work with each other? So when I was writing the book, he was he was running for office, and my thinking about him focused mostly on what he said. Mm. What interested me in that moment, I mean, it was just fortuitous because how often is it the case that I, someone who studies, you know, pre-19th century <laughs> political thought might actually be able to right? get something in the monkey cage. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, that was part of it. But, I mean, too, this followed on, this was, I think, the first, maybe the second time you had one of these public cabinet meetings mm -hmm. in which they would ritualistically perform acts of self-abasement as far <laughs> as I was concerned. Thank you, Mr. President, and uh, just the uh, greatest privilege of my life. 
minutes to serve as, as vice president to a president who's keeping his word to the American people. Mr. President, um, I am uh, privileged to be here. Uh, deeply honored. Mr. President, it's a privilege to serve. Privilege you've given me. I had the great privilege. Incredible privilege. To now, I don't know enough about presidential history to know if this is the only time this is. I mean, I suspect this happens behind closed doors because sure. they're dependent upon you. They serve at the pleasure of the president. What was odd to me was it happening in in public. Mm. What was odd in particular was that it, it seems to me that in the context of the late 18th century writings, when people are thinking about the break from Britain, the break from monarchy, setting up a new regime, how we should think about the president, how we should think about power, they were deeply concerned about things like that. So that's what struck me about it. Hmm. And the worries they, th I think they would have had are twofold. Under what circumstance does one feel compelled to engage in such behavior? And under what circumstances does one revel in it? Mm. Now, that said, we, we don't know the sincerity or insincerity of any of the actors involved or any of the motivations. And in fact, That's true. what better, I mean, to think, to kind of put it in opposite terms, what better sign of somebody's loyalty to you and trustworthiness is there than the fact that they're willing to abase themselves in public yeah, before you? Yeah, no kidding. Right? The flip side would be that's the last person you would want to trust. Maybe it's sincere adulation, right? Yeah. Michael Scott at the end of one episode of The Office um, <laughs> is uh, the great Michael Scott. Yeah, the great. He's he's a, he's a hero for our time, <laughs> and he's referring to Machiavelli, and he said, "Would I rather be feared or loved? Um, easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. And maybe maybe it's entirely genuine. <laughs> yeah. Okay." Uh, I, have, I have no idea, but that's yeah. right. I mean, it was in the big table where the cabinet meets, but it, the cameras were brought in, and it was this sort of opening round of self-abate. And not everybody did it. Some people said very little, and some people said something, but it was minimally you know, laudatory. And some people really went over. I mean, Pence was the one who I found, wow, mm -hmm. this is striking. Uh, assistant president or assistant to the president. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, it's, it's a fascinating thing. So I don't want to say it's unprecedented. I don't, even if something is unprecedented, doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. All right, yeah. I don't know enough. Maybe sure. again, this is what's gone Definitely. on. The, um, behind closed doors, and maybe this happened under Obama or Bush or Clinton. I don't remember. But the sort of excess of it, at least on the part of some of the participants, I did find quite, g given that I was reading and thinking about all this late 18th century American thought, quite striking. Mm -hmm. Let's kind of just take this pop culture break for a second. We talked about you are a mm -hmm. fan of The Good Place. Which is based on a character named Eleanor, who, after her death, is welcomed to the afterlife in The Good Place, opposed to The Bad Place by Michael, an immortal architect who built a specifically designed afterlife community that strives to accommodate everyone's specific tastes. Michael introduced Eleanor to Janet, an artificial intelligence that serves as a guide and repository of knowledge and can produce anything asked for just out of thin air. And metaethics is an overarching thematic structure for that show. So I'll pose this question and we'll, we'll just mm -hmm. see what you think. Does studying moral philosophy make you more ethical? Mm -hmm. And what's your take on The Good Place's answer to that question? So my answer is no. And I think their answer is no. I mean, basically, I don't think it makes you less ethical okay. or less moral. 
But I think, I mean, my own view, and I think the view of the show is it's much less about who you study than that you're doing these things together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I forget the names of all the, the characters, but I mean, Chidi is the one who he can't make a decision. Mm. And then Veronica Mars, I forget her, the name of the actress. Kristen, Kristen Bell. Bell. Okay. Right. She is Veronica Mars. Yeah. That's, that's my frame of reference. Okay. I mean, she's great. She's learning a certain vocabulary through the study of moral philosophy, but ultimately the development that occurs with her is a function of her relationships. And I think that's really what it models. It's not so much what you learn or the terminology Mm -hmm. or even necessarily the questions you ask, but the way in which the concrete effective ties between people draw you out of yourself. Even, you know, Ted Danson's character, the devil or whatever Mm -hmm. he is, he forms cares for the people he's supposed to be tormenting for all eternity. And he just can't do it anymore. Um, (laughs) And, and then he becomes a rebel, right? So yeah. this is giving probably a lot of the show away. Nah. So that's kind of, that's my take. I mean, I don't think it's the case that by by hearing Chidi lecture on moral philosophers who clearly he hasn't internalized because he can't even choose like what, what muffin to get, <laughs> uh, let alone solve the <laughs> yeah. trolley problem. Right. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem is that there is no right answer. This is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. I'm on your side here, dude, but he is not wrong. Okay, Michael, trust me. When it comes to human ethics, I just know more than you. I've been studying it my whole life. It's just that it's so theoretical, you know? I mean... You know, maybe there's a more concrete approach. Here, let, let's try this. Oh, God! Michael, what did you do? I made the trolley problem real so we could see how the ethics would actually play out. Um, which Ted Danson exults in. Uh, it's more, it's the doing it together and the sure, way in which sure. the togetherness and the, the shared affections transform mm-hmm. you. What would your work look like if it was played out in the good place? Uh, so, I mean, the where you, I mean, of my stuff that I've done, I think the one where you actually do see it, the sheer deception that goes on, especially in the first and into the second season, they're just messing with these four people, <laughs> and they're 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 just finding ways to mess with them creatively and okay. to deceive them, and. And so the sort of darker side of my flattery book, I guess, connects to that. <laughs> sure. Um, the human capacity for creative ways of deceiving mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. All right. So why don't we take another jaunt and, mm-hmm. and talk about uh, a different show? So we'll talk about Star Trek. And there's a number of questions we have listed, but the one I'm really interested in is the relationship between your mind and your brain. Are they separate items? Are they identical? I guess, can a machine someday think is data a person mm-hmm. what's your uh, thought on this right so i mean i'm not <laughs> say i'm not a philosopher of mind my general understanding of both the biological dimension and the philosophical debate is that you know my, i mean mind is what we would often refer to as consciousness or seat of consciousness obviously your brain is a big part of it but they're not coextensive can a machine think or be conscious someday i think the answer is yes i don't see why not who knows what the future will bring in terms of technological development mm-hmm. i mean in the 19th century people thought that it was unsafe to travel in trains it was too fast for the human body mm. so who knows but i i wouldn't be surprised hopefully it's not skynet <laughs> yeah. or hal um <laughs> 
but we'll see. And now data, is data a person? I think the answer is yes. And I mean, the way I would explain it is through questions. Can data develop and change not only his activity, but his thinking about his activity, mm-hmm. his meta thinking in response to stimuli? Does he have the capacity to formulate plans of action that will regulate individual level choices and desires? Mm-hmm. Um, can he choose between things, rank and evaluate them? Um, can you form second order plans? I think the answer to all of these is yes. And in particular, do we think of him as being sentient, as having rights? Mm-hmm. I think the answer to that is yes, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he is a person. Right? At a minimum, he's a, I mean, Star Trek will use the language of sentient beings. Mm-hmm. That's in the Federation Charter. They don't talk about <laughs> okay. persons because they don't all look alike. Yeah. And, and sometimes the sentient being is the goop that they find on right. the planet. And sometimes it's the space thing that they find floating around in space. Yeah. And sometimes it's the tardigrave in the newest series, which isn't my favorite. So, yeah, I think he's a person. Okay. Uh, he certainly has rights. Sure. Okay. So there we go. So he has rights. But are there things that humans can do that he cannot do that might you know, devil's advocate that mm-hmm. he m- might not qualify as being a sentient being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one would be uh, emotion. Right. Can he have emotions? Does he? Now, in Star Trek First Contact, he has the emotion ship, and so he can feel them, but he can mm. turn it off by toggling <laughs> it, by clicking his head. Data, you all right? Yes, sir. I'm fine. Now get rid of that damn twitch and put on the correct uniform. Yes, Captain. Does one need to have emotions to be a person? Yeah. I don't think so. No? Okay. No. I mean, we could imagine a human being who, for whatever reason, they've had some kind of brain damage or what have you, and their emotional responses are cut off. Have they ceased to be a person? I think the answer is no. Hmm. Um, similarly, one could have all emotion and no reason, right? Mm-hmm. Would we call them a person? I think so, right? But if, I mean, it's the totality. It's, I mean, to me, it's about choice, planning, hierarchy, uh, identifying ends, pursuing them, etc. There's plenty of other beings in the Star Trek universe that don't have emotions, or they might have what we call an excess of emotions. So, I mean, to me, it's, it's the totality. But yeah, there are, I mean, he can't reproduce, mm-hmm. but there's plenty of human beings that we endow with rights and perceive of sparing rights who can't reproduce or don't want to reproduce, right? So some of the questions that you brought up of that data does qualify as being a person for mm-hmm. you, is there a percentage of, of checks that something needs to be able to mark mm-hmm. off for you to be qualified as being a person? Is 80% enough or does it need to be, you need to hit all of these to be considered a person? In your case, it sounds like no, because emotion is not something that data can, can tick off the mm-hmm. list. What is the tipping point of, yes, this is a person or not? I mean, sentience would just be whether it's stimulus response or something like that. I mean, I tend myself to have a pretty relaxed account because yeah. the ultimately the thicker it becomes, the, the easier it is to say that X, Y, or Z is not human, mm-hmm. right? Or not worth rights or not worth endowing with rights. I would prefer to put the burden on the no than the yes myself. So I don't have a number or a checklist, but I think mm-hmm. of the things that I would normally say constitute personhood. Yeah. And I think that by and large, data's got them. Number one, have you ever considered whether data is more human or less human than we want? I only wish we were all as well balanced, sir. Agreed. Let's move on to 
some teaching questions. Mm-hmm. We'll probably wrap up here. Mm-hmm. You teach several courses, and I'm curious about some of the upper-level courses that you're teaching this semester, one of which is called Deception and Politics. Can you maybe talk about what those main themes are? What is a good day in the classroom for you mm-hmm. in this course? Mm-hmm. Just thematically, I mean, the course is basically structured so that about more or less 45% of the time is spent on deception, why it is either intrinsic to politics, necessary for politics, useful for politics, Mm -hmm. good, or I mean, anything like that. Another 45%, it's the opposite. It's why is it bad? Mm -hmm. Why is it Mm -hmm. harmful? Why is it non-intrinsic? And we read a range of thinkers to do that. And then the last subunit is we'll watch a film in class and then we'll spend the last day talking about Mm -hmm. it as a sort of lab. Rhetoric always entails within it the possibility, if not the actuality, of some kind of misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. And then also, it's just perennially interesting. I mean, politicians lie. I mean, humans lie. Mm -hmm. Politicians lie, especially. Mm Or we, we flatter ourselves to say that they, they lie more than we do. Yeah. So there's no shortage of material, and, and people have been worried about this since Homer. But yeah, in terms of what is a good day in the classroom, in, that, in any of my classes, I run out of time. Don't cover all the material mm-hmm. I set out to cover. But what I like is when I can't get through what I want to get through because they have something they want to talk about. And I especially like it when that thing that they want to talk about isn't what I want them to talk about, mm-hmm. but still interesting. So that's, yeah, that's a good day for me. I okay. like I like running out of time. I like when I don't have to talk. So just in closing here, I also hear that you are the faculty director of the PEP certificate. Mm-hmm. What is that acronym and, and what's your role there? The acronym stands for Political Economy, Philosophy, and Politics. It is a certificate degree housed in political science, but jointly administered with philosophy and economics. Mm. And it's basically an undergraduate certificate program that is designed to appeal to people who are interested in cross-disciplinary study and um, engagement with important economic, political, philosophical ideas and problems. And that's, mm-hmm. that's basically the gist of it. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, yeah, why don't we head over and uh, and take a walk up Bascom? This is the lightning round? This is the lightning Can round. Can I get a lifeline? <laughs> yeah. Phone a friend. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, Dan, we are now standing at the base of Bascom. Um, and so we will do a series of rapid fire questions. Like I've said before, five seconds or less, one word answers are ideal. Who knows where this could go? So let's take a walk up Bascom. Should my lawyer be friends with <laughs> That's up to you. All right, first one is pretty simple. Uh, favorite lunch spot in Madison? Favorite lunch spot in Madison? Uh, Mediterranean Cafe. Okay, what was your first job out of college? First job out of undergrad. After I graduated undergrad? Yeah. uh, Waited tables at uh, an Italian American restaurant (laughs) called That's Amore. Okay. Um, On average, how many hairs are on a person's head? Uh, 732,516. Wow, very specific, although very high. There's only about 100,000. All right, I have no idea. (laughs) What is your favorite sport to play? My favorite sport to play, bowling. How about watch? To watch men's college basketball or women's college, well, just college basketball. College basketball, okay. Favorite pizza toppings? Favorite pizza toppings. I love anchovies, artichokes, olives. Okay, blue pen or black pen? Black pen, what do you think I am? (laughs) 
I see you got a red pen in your shirt pocket there. That's, for, that's just because that's what was in the office. Okay. My preferred pen is a Uniball Onyx. Ah, okay. Very specific. I like it. What book are you currently reading? As in a novel? Sure. Uh, the novel is called Asymmetry. The author's last name is Halliday. Okay. If you owned a restaurant, what food would you serve? If I owned a restaurant, what food would I serve? Uh, probably Korean barbecue. Okay, and what's the name of this restaurant? What's the name of this restaurant? Oh, that's a good question. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> okay. Um, Capus Korean barbecue? Uh, I feel like, you, yeah. <laughs> oh that I had to think about. Campus grill, that's terrible. Okay, okay. I'll, 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 I'll take a pass. Okay. Uh, favorite summer activity in Madison? Favorite summer activity in Madison? Uh, going to the terrace. Okay. Coke or Pepsi or neither? Coke? <laughs> <laughs> Pepsi isn't even an option. Okay. Uh, do you have any pets? And if so, what are their names? Uh, we had a pet. Uh, her name is Maple, um, but she and my son had philosophical disagreements. Ah, okay. And we found a new home for her. Gotcha. What comes once in a minute, twice in a moment, but never in a thousand years? And I can repeat it if you need. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to figure this one out walking up the hill. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So, final question, and this one is a little bit longer duration, which it might be pretty easy for you. We'll see. Uh, last question. You have 30 seconds to rattle off as many uh, buildings on the UW campus as you can. Ready? Go. Bascom, Van Vleck, North Hall, South Hall, Science Hall, Memorial Union, Union South, Social Sciences, Ingram, Van Heys, um, uh, Helen C. White Library, Memorial Library, Faculty Club slash University Club. Uh, man, all these dorms with the names. <laughs> yeah. Witty, um, Van Vleck, uh, the Mickeljohn House, Wisconsin Institute of Discovery. Um, all right, we're approaching Hall, time. King Hall, Three, Soil Science, two, uh, Humanities. All righty. That was pretty good. You got a lot more than uh, than I suspected, but uh, you, you've been on campus for a while, too. Yeah. Well, the so. problem was I was trying to think of the names of the dorms, and I'm, I'm just not Yeah, to... yeah. Oh, Celery, Chadbourne. Yeah. Um, before we go, favorite, favorite, uh, favorite building on campus? Favorite building on campus? <laughs> uh, well, I'm actually partial to the faculty club. Okay, yeah. okay, good food, cool. All right, Dan, uh, thanks for spending some time this morning uh, recording with us in the studio and then taking a walk up Bascom on this actually quite lovely spring day. Mm -hmm.